Hi, this is John Gunter. I'm the preaching minister at the Eagle Community Church of Christ here in Mont Bellevue, Texas. You found our podcast where we store all of our sermons, and uh, we're just so glad that you have. You found us right in the middle of a new series we're calling Stranger Stories as we go through this October uh, fall season. This week, uh, Jordan Santos uh, brings us a word. I was actually out of town. And Jordan steps in and he talks about the life of Moses. So the last two weeks, we've talked about the life of Jonah and the life of Elijah, kind of bringing out some kind of weird, kind of strange uh, events of those things. Uh, So today we hear from Jordan talking about the life of Moses. Again, thank you for for joining us here. And we hope you'll uh, come visit sometime soon. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Good morning again. I always am down there when I lead singing, and John is the only one that stands up here. And so I knew that John was not taller than me. He just had a little step. Today, first time the clicker wasn't working, but now it is. It's on. There we go. Yes, haha. Okay. Good morning. We're going to continue this morning our series on Stranger Stories. Uh, if you don't know what the, sto- the, the series is based off of, uh, Stranger Things, it's October, I guess, so it's a little bit of a, a scary sermon series. Stranger, <coughs> Stranger Things is a Netflix show where it's a group of kids who uh, are fighting to save their friend and also to uncover a government, uh, I don't know what you call it, conspiracy of a hidden place a secret place called the Upside Down. And the Upside Down is a place just like the world that we know, except that in the Upside Down, uh, it's dark, things are dreary, kind of, you could categorize it as evil. There are monsters that kind of live in the Upside Down. And so getting caught in the Upside Down is a bad thing. Uh, with the series, Stranger Stories, we're talking about some Bible characters that we know and that we appreciate and maybe even look to as faith examples in our lives. but We want to be real and look into their story and see where maybe they have slipped into the upside down, where maybe they've divulged from the path of God into a different place away from him. So two weeks ago, we talked about Jonah. We talked about how Jonah was a prophet of God, uh, but he didn't want to listen to God. He had a message that was given to him to give to people, but instead he tried to run away, and that didn't work out very well for him. And Jonah, he was even frustrated when uh, the Ninevites, the people he was uh, prophesizing to, when they repented, he was really mad about that, you know, when people turned to good. Uh, Then last week we talked about Elijah, who he was also a prophet of God, and he was doing the right things, he was saying the right things, he was proclaiming the message that he was supposed to, but the people, they were turning away from God, they weren't having it, they didn't want to listen, uh, and that kind of made Elijah feel lonely and sad about what his true calling really was. Today, we're going to talk about, oh, wrong way, Moses. Moses is also a a semi-prophet of God, you could say, but in this instance, he turned away from God, and then also the people turned away from God. So everyone was making bad decisions. It was not a good time, and we'll talk about that. But there are a lot of aspects of Moses' story that we're pretty familiar with that we talk about in Bible Bible class, you know. Uh, Moses, he started off, he was born in a time where 
the Pharaoh, uh, the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt, and the Pharaoh was killing all the n newborn Hebrew boys because they were worried about an uprising. And so what they did is his mother and his sister put him in a basket in the river uh, to save him from his death, and the Pharaoh's daughter picked him up and raised him as her own child uh, in the royal household. Um, then we have Moses in the burning bush. That's a pretty strange story, you would say. A lot of weird things going on. We're not talking about Moses in the burning bush. Uh, the ten plagues of Egypt, when Moses came and told the Pharaoh to let my people go, let us out of cap captivity, um, ten plagues happened. And these are also pretty strange things. You could eat, like, the last plague is the literal angel of death coming, marching through the streets looking for blood, which sounds exactly like something you would find in the Upside Down. But we're not talking about that either. And then another aspect of Moses' story that we're really familiar with, the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, a great, uh, great show of God's power and mighty to save the people from the e Egyptians one last time, walking across the Red Sea on dry land. Um, but we're not talking about any of these things, right? Uh, Moses has lived a pretty eventful life up to this point. But I would venture to say that that was the easy part. Once Moses and the people left Egypt, finally, that's when things got hard. That's when things started to go downhill. And we'll talk about that more today. Moses, um, like I said, uh, as they left Egypt, this was kind of when things started to get bad. Moses, I imagine him as a parent, right? Um, he has all these people that he's kind of leading along and... If you know much about their story, every chance they get, they are complaining about something, right? And they always wish that they had stayed in Egypt. They had stayed in captivity, which never really makes sense. But as Moses is taking these people uh, from Egypt to their promised land, it sounds a lot like this. Are we there yet? All those, you know, those stereotypical things you hear from the back of the car. I don't want to eat that, or I don't want to go, or anything. Sounds exactly like kids in the back seat. I'm the oldest of five kids. I have four younger siblings. Uh, two of them are still in high school, uh, if that tells you how young I am. But whenever our, we were growing up, I, I, since I was the oldest, I felt like I was a little more mature. I knew what I was doing. I had kids looking up to me. Um, and I'll leave it at that. You can ask my parents if you ever see them, if that was true or not. But um, one thing that was always rough was riding in the car. And we spent most of my childhood in Odessa, Texas, which is West Texas, and we didn't have any family around us. So anytime we were going to visit family, we'd either be driving six hours to see my grandparents or 10 hours to see my aunt and uncle. And my mom had all of us within a span of eight years. And so when my youngest brother was two, I was 10. And so we were all really young at the same time. And car rides, especially ones that long, were awful. And like I said, I would love to say that I was, you know, I was an example. But I was the kid that I would ask to, to say that I needed to use the bathroom as soon as we left the gas station. And it would be another 30 minutes of me begging to pull over before we actually did. Uh, my two sisters, 
uh, they were the ones who wanted to sing along to their uh, Hannah Montana or Taylor Swift CD in the car as loud as humanly possible. And then my two brothers were in the back seat, literally throwing punches at each other, <laughs> fighting over what DVD to watch in their portable DVD player uh, the whole trip. And my poor parents, uh, they worked really hard, but trips were awful for them. And I don't blame them even a little bit. I understand more now uh, as I've kind of uh, gotten older, but it was rough. And I say all that to say, um, imagine instead of five kids in the back seat, you have over two million kids in the back seat. And that's kind of how Moses is found in this moment. So as they leave Egypt, first, one of the first things they do is they take a census, so they count everybody. And Numbers 1, 45 and 46 says this, So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,555. And you say, Jordan, that's not 2 million. And you're right. But that's men. And you know, in this time, we could assume that a man had a wife and they maybe had two kids. Six times four, 24, if you move the decimal, 2.4. 2.4 million, that's a lot of people. And I like to imagine God is driving the longest bus possible. And Moses is in the passenger seat and he's the one that has to turn around, tell people to sit down, be quiet, quit complaining, all that stuff. And um, the most interesting parts of trips is, you know, my mom kind of had that role where she had to tell us to be quiet. and. Poor moms, nobody ever listens to moms. But my dad, you knew things were real and you had to straighten up whenever he would adjust the rear view mirror to make eye contact with you. And you look and he's staring into your soul and that's when you have to really take it seriously. And God does that a few times in this long journey that they're taking. But Moses is playing this role of a mediator between all of these people and God, and the people are never happy, and God is often upset with the people, and he's in a really frustrating situation. Do you think Moses is frustrated? Of course he is. And it's extra frustrating because ever since the people have left Egypt, God has constantly been providing for them, right? Whether that be through... Um, uh, uh, food falling from the sky in the form of manna, where they, they didn't have to go hunt, they didn't have to go gather, it was just literally outside on the ground they could pick up and eat. Or he was providing water in the desert, or he was providing guidance as they traveled through a big pillar of cloud or, uh, or fire even floating along as they moved. So God was taking really good care of them, but the thing is the, the Hebrew people were never ever expressing their gratitude, right? They always had some sort of complaints. And so Moses, dealing with all that, obviously he was in a very frustrating position. And we don't blame him. But the problem with Moses and his story is not that he gets frustrated, but it's when that frustration turns into anger and his anger consumes him and it leads him down a different path. And we see a few different instances in Moses' story where his anger kind of takes over. One of the first examples I want to look at, this is back when he's still in Egypt, but this kind of uh, plants the seeds of uh, some of his temper issues. So in Exodus chapter 2, there's a story about Moses and an Egyptian man. Moses is still, he's living in the royal palace. He has a great life, but 
Um, he's aware that he's a Hebrew and he knows all the slaves are his people. And so in Exodus 2, 11 through 15, it talks about one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? When Mo then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So you know when, uh, when you think you get away with something and you don't? I, I, I remember a few weeks ago, Abby, she's a nurse and she works nights, right? And so when she works nights, she sleeps during the day, and that means I end up eating lunch by myself, which is fine. And I like to cook usually, but the thing is, cooking for one, you don't really have the motivation to do that a lot of times, especially in the middle of a work day, since I work from home. And so um, sometimes it leads for me to just go get food, right? And one day I remember I went and got Chick-fil-A. And I love Chick-fil-A, Abby loves Chick-fil-A, but I thought, Abby can't know that I got Chick-fil-A because she's gonna be sad that I got it without her. And so I ate my food, and then I did the thing where I hid it in the trash can, and I tried to push it down as far as possible and cover it up so it wasn't visible. And so I was like, okay, I covered my tracks. I don't want to hurt her feelings. Anyways, whenever, whenever she woke up later that day to get ready for work, um, I'm sitting on the couch, and she comes to me, and she's holding my Chick-fil-A cup that I, I guess, had forgotten to throw away, and she looks at me with a sad face. And she's like, yeah. did you go eat Chick-fil-A without me? And uh, I had to come clean, you know. And I, Moses, although not in the same situation, I imagined him doing kind of the same thing. You know, he kills this man. He eats his Chick-fil-A. And he covers it up in the sand and thinks, oh, he got away with it. And then come to find out the next day, apparently he's been found out and he runs away. Um, but the problem with the story, obviously he killed a man. You know, that's not a good thing. But the, where he went wrong, excuse me, oh, where he went wrong is he took kind of things into his own hands. And uh, we understand why he was upset, right? He saw one of his own people, a Hebrew person that he was kin to, even though he wasn't living alongside them. Uh, one of his own people was getting beaten unjustly. And honestly, I would feel the same way. I would be very upset and I would uh, feel vindictive about that. We understand why Moses is upset in the situation, but the problem is when his frustration, again, turns into anger and that turns into him doing something that God probably wouldn't like him to do, right? The next, uh, the next example I wanna talk about is story of the golden calf, which uh, is also the same story about the 10 commandments. We know the 10 commandments. This is when uh, Moses and the people, they get to Mount Sinai and, uh, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to speak with God to receive the law. And we talk about the law a lot in church. That includes, you know, the Ten Commandments, but then also laws about worship and their faith and um, honestly everything to do with their daily life, you know. And so Moses is up there, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, which we hear the term 40 days and 40 nights quite a bit in the Bible. And when we see numbers repeated, like there's kind of an 
I don't know what you'd say, just a connection between them. You know, we think about threes, about the Trinity and three days. We think about completeness and wholeness. We think about seven, you know, seven days to uh, finish the, the creation of the world. We think of these numbers that have associations with them, 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, 40 days for um, Noah and his family to be on the ark during the flood, right? 40 days that... Uh, Goliath was taunting the Israelites, saying, someone come and challenge me. Or 40 days where Jesus was fasting in the wilderness, um, waiting for Satan to come and tempt him. And 40 days, although it may mean a literal 40 days, also symbolically, it kind of just means a long time in order to emphasize something. So we have Noah and his family on the ark for 40 days, or they were on the ark for a long time, to emphasize the destruction of the world that was going on around them, that they couldn't get off the boat for such a long time that the world was devastated. Or Goliath, he was taunting the Israelites for a long time in order to emphasize the fear that the people felt um, that David overcame to fight Goliath himself. Or Jesus was in the wilderness fasting for a long time in order to show the real depth of the temptation he was going to have to overcome when Satan came. And so 40 days is a long time, especially for the people that Moses is with. We've established that they love to complain about everything anyways. And 40 days waiting for Moses, they can't really handle that. So John's been to all these places, so he has his own pictures, but I just got off of Google. Up there is Mount Sinai. And down here, where it says golden calf, that's where the Israelites were. There we go. That's where the Israelites were waiting. And the scripture says whenever um, Moses was up there, God came down in like a big cloud and it covered the mountain. So they couldn't see up there. They didn't know what happened to him. And um, as impatient people, it was not a good mix of them sitting and waiting tight, right? And so some things happened. Exodus 32 says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are our gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that, I may, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." So this is one of the moments where God is turning back the rearview mirror and he's upset and he's ready to go. He's ready to burst. Um, but Moses does something. Uh, he, inter he intercedes and he speaks up on behalf of the people. He says, 
but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them and the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I have promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented, and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So Moses intercedes and God relents. God changes his mind. He decides not to bring upon the punishment that he was ready to bring on, which good on Moses. You know, he stepped in, he did the right thing. Uh, and if the story ended here, you know, it'd be a great day and everyone would go, go away happy. But as Moses goes down the mountain and meets the people, things start to change. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. His anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire, and then he ground it into powder, scattering it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Recently, uh, Apple announced their new iPad mini. I've been trying to convince Abby that I need one to be a better minister and whatnot, you know? And um, I think thousands upon thousands of years later, if you throw a tablet off the side of the mountain, it's still gonna shatter, right? And, but the thing is, this is honestly, it's gruesome, right? Moses comes down, he had just told God, I'll chill out, don't worry about it. I'll go to, uh, don't, don't bring disaster onto them. And then he comes down and he literally makes them drink their mistakes. And not only that, later it goes on to say that Moses had 3,000 of the men killed for what had happened. And so Moses has taken things into his own hands. And the, the ironic part of it is right here in 19, it says, when Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, which God had already told him what was there. It's not like he was surprised. It says his anger burned and he threw the tablets. But literally <coughs> up here, where are we at? Uh, Moses tells God, uh, why should your anger burn? Turn from your anger. So he's telling God, no, don't, don't be upset. Don't, it'll, it'll be okay. And then he turns around and does the exact same thing. Oh, next story, we're going to talk about the rock. Not that one. I don't know how that happened. Oh, yeah, okay, the rock. I'm used to talking with teenagers, if you can't tell. <laughs> Um, the rock. There are two stories about Moses and a rock, and a rock, right? First one is in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, it's a very simple story. The people are complaining as usual. They're thirsty, understandable. They've been walking for a long time. They come to Moses and complain. Moses goes to God and says, God, the people are thirsty. God says, okay, take your staff, go and strike this rock, and water will come out. 
And he did that. Water came out. Everybody got to drink. Everybody was happy. Good story. This story has a similar setup, but a different ending that does not go as well as the other story. So Numbers chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 2. It says, Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gathered the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. So like I said, very similar setup, but instead this time uh, God says, just speak to the rock, um, which I don't know why God does his own thing. He has his own plan for whatever. So instead of striking it this time, he said, speak to it. And if Moses had um, obeyed the way he did last time, people would have gotten their water and everyone would have been happy. They could have gone along their way. But at this point, it has been years upon years upon years of Moses being the mediator for these people. Years upon years of them constantly complaining and being upset with their situation. And this whole time where God has constantly provided for them, they continue to say things like, why did we leave Egypt in the first place? And just like any other believer in God would feel, Moses is upset. Moses is upset that they're not trusting in God. They're not appreciating all that he has done for them. And I think Moses is just at his tipping point. All these things has built up. This is not a one-time incident, right? Things have built up to this point. And so instead of just doing as God has asked, his anger begins to take control and he begins to make a different decision. He begins to slip into the upside down. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out in the community, and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough, to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. And we think, what's the, what's the big deal, right? Last time Moses hit the rock, so it's understandable why he would just do it again. It makes sense. What's, what's God upset about? But I think God gets to the root of the problem in his response when he says, because you did not trust in me, enough. And this is, this is evidence of things that Moses has done throughout the story. Whenever Moses has neglected what God, what God had wanted, and he takes control of things himself, that's when things go the wrong way. 
back in Egypt when he killed the Egyptian. That was Moses taking control of the situation. When the golden calf uh, was built and Moses came down from the mountain, he told God, don't let your anger burn. But then he took control of the situation and handled it himself. And here again, even if it's just one little detail that he changed, instead of listening to what God had asked of him, he took control of the situation himself. And the thing is, I think that each and every day we continue to have that same sort of struggle, right? And Moses, his consequence was not to take the people into the promised land, something his whole life had been working up to. And I believe that I will see Moses in heaven. I don't think he was condemned forever. But we have to acknowledge that an earthly blessing, an earthly um, opportunity was taken away from him because of his decisions. And I don't think that any of our decisions are going to have as great of an impact. But I know that every day we're doing things where we're choosing to be in control or we're choosing to let God be in control. The, the part of Moses' story that is so relatable is we can never blame Moses for being upset. We can't blame Moses for being frustrated that one of his fellow countrymen was being beaten in the street. We can't blame Moses for being upset that the people of God were building an altar, an idol, to somebody else. We can't blame Moses for being upset that these people are constantly complaining. But the problem is when his frustrations turn into anger and his anger consumes him. So in order to avoid going down that same path, we have to be able to look into ourselves and look into our lives and acknowledge what really affects us in that way, how our anger can consume us. And so a few quick points as we close this out. I have three things that I want us to remember about the stories we've talked about today. And then I have three things that I want to challenge you uh, and I want you to think about. So first thing is anger is understandable. Like we've said, we don't blame Moses for getting angry. And we also, we get up frustrated all the time, uh, whether that be at work, whether that be um, with uh, <coughs> friends, with family, at church, whatever that is. Um, anytime that we're around people, people are not perfect as we move into the next point, but people are going to frustrate us. And people are flawed. Moses had 2.4 million people that he had with, that he was constantly uh, walking this journey with. Today, Christianity has 2.4 billion people. There are a lot more people that we're walking to the promised land with. And as a result of that, there are a lot more people and a lot more ways that we can get frustrated, that we can get upset, that we can uh, uh, have friction within each other. And that's to be expected, right? Because people are flawed. But the problem of that comes when we don't acknowledge that God is in control. And at church, I think it's one of the hardest things. I know that we all have our preference, preferences. We all have uh, our own study that we have. We have our own relationship with God. And it's hard to 
align that perfectly with people that we worship with every Sunday. Not only church, but our lives in general. I know that you know, when you start out as a kid and your parents take you everywhere and they put your clothes on you and they give you food, it's really nice. Your life is good. You don't have to worry about anything. And then as you become a teenager, you start thinking that you should have more control than you do and you want to be more independent. And then there's this friction with you and your parents because you're a big kid and you can do what you want. Now that I know you don't think I'm very old, but now that I've grown up and Abby and I have gotten married and we've moved off to a new state, um, we're actually making decisions on our own. We're actually uh, paving our own life. And the temptation with that is, as I have more responsibility, that's when I grasp harder to uh, what I can control. I know that especially, um, especially starting a new job, uh, and a new marriage, we want it, like there's a lot of stress involved with those things. And the more stressed out you get, the more you think about, okay, what can I control? Because I don't know if I trust other people to handle this, or I don't know if I trust other people to take care of this. I, I know I trust myself, I know my life, I know what I can do. I'm gonna hold on to my things and take care of it myself. And in a sense, that is true. You know your life better than anybody. Uh, you know the direction that you're trying to go. but. Every time that you grasp harder uh, to the driver's seat, you inevitably are pushing, pushing someone to the back. And a lot of times that ends up being God, who's a much better driver than we are, right? And so it's important to remember that God is in control not only uh, in church as we are with our church family, but in every aspect of our life. And some questions that I want you to think about that I want to challenge you with as we leave today, is you need to know what fuels your anger most. The easy answer, obviously for me, I hate lines, right? I hate waiting in lines. Lines are the dumbest thing, why especially traffic. Why can't we just all go forward, you know? It never works out that way. But not only that, but uh, in your faith, in your relationship with other people, what angers you the most? Because now that we are committed to being part of a church family and working together, and that we're gonna be working with a lot of different people, we have to know ourselves what angers me the most and how can I control that, or not control that, but how can, I, how can I avoid that? How can I lessen how this affects me? Next thing is, uh, where are you being to, called to serve God's people? We all have a role in this church, obviously. Uh, John's usually up here, I work with the teenagers, uh, but everybody else has a role that they play and they're all just as important. We've all been called into something in this kingdom, and you have to know where you're being called and what sort of uh, challenges come with that. Moses, he was called to lead these people. It's really awkward that people frustrated him so much. I wouldn't have taken this job if I hated teenagers, right? Only a little bit. And so you have to know uh, where you're being called and what kind of challenges go with that in order to protect yourself from letting your anger uh, consume you in those moments. And then last thing, uh, when do you fight for control? As I said, uh, as we go through our lives and we have more responsibilities, we want to uh, control things more because the more we have on our plate, the less, the more stress we get, the less we uh, trust other people, right? And so when do you fight for control? Uh, if you're not able to answer that, you have to look deep in yourself because we're all fighting for control. We're all um, 
trying to be more than we are, and we're all trusting ourselves more than God in instances. And this goes right back to God's response to Moses. Why uh, did Moses uh, lose out on his blessing, even though it was the smallest thing? The root of the problem was he did not believe in God to take care of it enough. And as we're in church, we're sitting here, we all believe in God, right? We all believe um, that he loves us, that he takes care of us. But there's always this point in our life where we're like, I don't know if God has time for that. I'm going to take care of that. We don't know if God looks into our finances, looks into our home life, if God uh, cares about everything. And so we try to, it's like, oh, God can have the church things, but everything else I really need to take care of. Do you believe in God enough for all of it? Because if we don't believe in God enough for all of it, imagine how much we are missing out on. Luckily, we don't have to miss out on our promised land, right? Uh, Every mistake that we could have made, uh, Jesus came down and he paid for all of them. And so we don't have that hanging over our head, but still, how many things do we want to miss out on? I would say none. And because we have this blessing of Jesus, the Bible says, should we continue on uh, so that grace may abound? By no means. As we live our life, there's always going to be a struggle with who is in control. And when we fight for control and we're working with people and we're living our life, our anger will often get the best of us. And of course, it's okay to be angry. But when we let our anger take over and we push God into the back seat, things don't go very well. And so an encouragement I have for you today as we go out into the world and as we live our life, I want you to think about these things, about what fuels your anger, where you're being called, and what are you trying to control But I also want to encourage you that no matter how many of these mistakes that you make, no matter how times you let your anger get the best of you, no no matter how many times you yell at your brother or sister in Christ or how you are upset with things, how they're going in the church, no matter how many times those things happen, Jesus paid for all of those times. I think we live our life knowing that things have been paid for. It becomes a lot easier for us to put our faith in God. Do you believe in God enough? That's the question I have for you today. Um, We have a song of invitation uh, to Canaan's land, I'm on my way. Good choice, I think. Uh, We're going to our new promised land and we have a lot more people going with us. And I want you to consider that as we sing uh, this song together and think about how you're going to interact and how you're gonna show love to those people along the way. Uh, Let's stand and sing together.